You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. For our regular listeners, you know that we've been talking about health insurance reform and its various initiatives, Republican uh, proposal on health reform, Democrat proposal on health reform. We've talked about a book I've written called Unlocking the Secrets of Health Insurance Affordability. We've talked about understanding healthcare consumerism. We've talked about the coronavirus and had some interviews with doctors on the coronavirus. Well, today, I want to focus on coronavirus again. Because the president last week was hospitalized with coronavirus. We're all afraid of getting it. It's almost like it's the um, uh, the Black Plague. Uh, people are afraid of dying from it, um, especially those of us who are up in age. Uh, I'm particularly I'm healthy, but um, and don't have coexisting conditions, uh, asthma, diabetes, overweight, any of those issues. But it still concerns me and my wife. Concerns my kids that they might uh, infect me as they're a little bit more mobile and active in the community. We try to wear masks every place. So I want to talk today about what this virus really is, because I'm not sure that many people really know or understand or have a background in what's been going on in coronavirus research. And that's been going on for a lot longer than most people will fully understand until after they listen to this podcast. But there's a lot of information out there in scientific journals, in magazines and newspaper reports, uh, real journalists, not uh, political journalists trying to drive home a point that it's Trump's fault or it's Obama's fault or somebody else. So I want to take today and really get into a clear understanding what this coronavirus is all about. And as we start that process, we need to have some understanding of terminology. As layman, the scientific language doesn't always resonate or we don't really understand what it is. But let me start off with two definitions that are really basic to uh, the understanding and the development of the um, research that I've done on this whole issue. The first is that a disease and a virus are two different terms for the same thing. The disease, for example, the coronavirus disease that we're currently calling COVID-19, that is a short form of really the uh, coronavirus disease, uh, dash 19. And then there's the name of the virus itself. So the disease is coronavirus or COVID-19, but the virus that causes that disease is called something else entirely. And the name of the virus is SARS-CoV-2. And SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. It's a form of the coronavirus. They all have some interconnecting um, DNA connection. They're very similar. Um, but the virus's name is SARS. And we're going to talk about other SARS coronaviruses that have existed and what the differences are and how it's affected us and maybe even better understand where all this came from. So 
a basic question here again is why does the virus and the disease have different names and who names them? Well, viruses and the diseases that they cause often have different names. For example, HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. So people often know the name of the disease, but not the name of the virus that causes it. But most of us know HIV, AIDS. We kind of throw all that together, but HIV is the virus and AIDS is the disease. And there are different processes and purposes for naming viruses and diseases. Viruses are named based on their genetic structure to facilitate the development of diagnostic tests, vaccines, and medicines. So that's more for the scientists to understand this naming of the viruses that gives them sort of a a family structure. Virologists and wider scientific community to do this work on viruses are named in the International Committee of Taxonomy of Viruses. So that's a whole different area for people who do work on the actual viruses as opposed to those who do the work on the disease. So diseases are named to enable discussion of disease prevention, spread, transmittability, severity, and treatment. Human disease preparedness and response is the World Health Organization's role. So diseases are officially named by the World Health Organization in what they call the International Classification of Diseases. Now, the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses announced the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, or SARS-CoV-2, as the name of the new virus on 11 February 2020. That's the one we're all familiar with. It's really... SARS-CoV-2 is the alternative name that identifies the virus. This name was chosen because the virus is genetically related to the coronavirus responsible for the SARS outbreak in 2003. Now keep that in mind because we're going to come back and talk about the SARS outbreak in 2003 and this current virus that we call COVID-19 or the China virus really relates back to the SARS Uh, virus and the outbreak in 2013. And while these are related, the two viruses are clearly have some differences. So the World Health Organization announced COVID-19 as the name of the new disease on the 11th of February 2020, following guidelines previously developed with the World Health Organization for Animal Health and the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. So technically, the disease is a coronavirus disease, but the underlying virus is a SARS coronavirus. So I hope that clarifies two important terms. Now, let's talk about the coronavirus types again for a second before we get into the details of sort of how this might have started and how scientists actually work with viruses and why they work with viruses. So there's a whole series of what they call human coronavirus types. And coronaviruses are named for that crown-like spike that many of us have seen on news reports that's on the surface of the virus. There are four main subgroupings of coronaviruses known as alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. The human coronaviruses were first identified in the mid-1960s. There are seven coronaviruses that can infect people. 
Now, there are certain ones, the first four, are common, and they've got various names that scientists have given them with numbers and letters. I'm not going to go into that, but they're they're called alpha coronaviruses and beta coronaviruses, numbers basically one and two, but there are a set of four of them. But there are three other human coronaviruses that some of us know because they have spread out and infected humans in various ways, some more serious than the others. MERS, which stands for the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and MERS developed mainly out of, like, camels uh, and some source in the Middle East. That's why it's called MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. So it's not unusual to name a virus after where it comes from, which is why President Trump was calling it the China virus, because it started in China. Well, the third of those uh, coronaviruses that tend to affect humans is called SARS, and that's the one we're going to focus on a lot today. And the SARS uh, coronavirus, uh, the beta form of it that they identify, the beta coronavirus, it causes severe acute respiratory syndrome, which is what SARS stands for. And then there's another SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that's sort of been created here that's affected the United States in 2019. So it's known as COVID-19 because of the 2019 um, cause of it. So people around the world commonly get affected with human coronaviruses, but they're typically that common form in the first four categories. I didn't get into a lot of details, but they're not particularly harmful. They don't kill a lot of people. It may kill some people, but they're nothing like the pandemic of potential of these last three, the MERS, the SARS-CoV-2, and the SARS-CoV-2. And remember, we're talking about SARS-CoV-2 in today's environment with this um, uh, COVID-19. So there are currently seven coronaviruses uh, that are known to cause disease in people, but so far, only those ones I mentioned have caused large outbreaks and are fatal and have fatal illnesses in people. SARS was first reported in Asia in February 2003, and over the next few months, the illness spread to more than two dozen countries in North America, South America, Europe, and Asia before the SARS global outbreak in 2003 was contained. Bats have been identified as the natural resource of severe acute respiratory syndrome, or the SARS, like and SARS coronaviruses. The discovery of bat SARS like coronaviruses and the great genetic diversity of coronavirus in bats have shed new light on the origin and the transmission of SARS coronaviruses. And that's what we're going to dig into the rest of this hour, the source and the transmission of these SARS coronaviruses. Another term to understand is the word pathogen. Now, as a layman like me, I really didn't fully understand pathogen. I sort of got a general feel that it wasn't good, but what is a pathogen? Well, a pathogen is usually defined as a bacterium, a virus, or other microorganism that causes or can cause a disease. So when we talk about this virus, it's a pathogen. It's a virus that causes diseases. So if I say that word pathogen or I read it from one of the articles, you'll understand that that's just identifying that there is a virus that can cause a disease as opposed to a virus that really doesn't cause diseases, it's just a virus. 
Well, in the last few minutes of this first segment, let me um, define a really key term here. So for laymen, there are two important terms, but I think I'm only going to have time to really define the first one. Then we'll come back in the next section, and I'll define the second one. The first one is called gain-of-function research. And what is it? It's a line of research where scientists take viruses and study how they might be modified to become deadlier and more transmittable among humans. Why would they do this? Scientists who engage in such research say it helps them to figure out which viruses threaten people so they can design countermeasures. Now keep in mind that viruses mutate in nature. Most viruses and animals do not mutate to create human transmissions. So this research tries to anticipate potential mutations that could affect humans. By doing so, they can develop potential cures for such natural when such natural mutations occur. Let me stop there, and we'll come back, and we'll talk a little bit more about this gain-of-function uh, process and why it's so important and why it's so dangerous. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You're on America's Web Radio. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. The first segment of this hour, we um, talked about some definitions of the virus, the coronavirus, uh, the COVID-19, and why it's also a SARS uh, virus. Um, in this session, what I want to talk about now are some of the um, scientific names, if you will, of what's going on, the things that they do, because these are terms that, as a layman, I didn't know existed. The first one we defined right at the end of the first segment. Uh, it's very important, so I want to remind you, it's called gain-of-function, gain-of-function research. And it's how scientists will take and manipulate viruses and study how they might be modified to become deadlier and more transmittable. Now, that sounds like a very dangerous thing to do, and you wonder why they would do it. Well, they do it because viruses mutate in nature, and so what they're trying to do in the lab is replicate some of that changing function that will occur during mutations, notice as the viruses evolve from one state to another one, uh, they're what's called mutating. And most viruses, when they mutate in nature, really don't mutate to become transmittable to humans. Sometimes they do. And so this research tries to anticipate potential mutations that could affect humans. And by doing so, then they can take that virus and try to develop cures. But until they develop a cure, you have these newly developed lab clinical research viruses that are very dangerous. And that danger is um, is not without being extreme if it's not being performed in 100% secure research labs. I mean, developing lethal viruses that do not exist in nature exposes really significant human-to-human uh, -human transmissions that would create a pandemic. So it has to be in a research lab that is 100% secure. Well, guess what? They're not always very secure. This is an example. Back in 2014, the U.S. government had placed a federal moratorium on this process called gain-of-function, or GOF research. It 
put a moratorium on the funding for altering natural pathogens. Again, that word that we described earlier, which is just means it's a virus that uh, transmits diseases. So altering these natural pathogens or viruses to make them more deadly and infectious as a result of rising fears about a possible pandemic caused by an accidental or deliberate release of these genetically engineered monster germs. There was great fear in 2014, and so a moratorium was placed on that. Why? Well, in part it was due to a number of lab accidents at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in July of 2014 that raised questions about biosafety. At the time, the CDC had disclosed, had closed two labs and halted some biological shipments in the wake of several incidences in which highly pathogenic microbes were mishandled by the U.S. government laboratories. A couple of examples. In 2014, it was a very bad accident in this biohazard front. In June 2014, as many as 75 scientists at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention were exposed to anthrax due to an accidental shipment of live anthrax around the country. Number two, there was a discovery of some forgotten live smallpox samples and a newly revealed incident in which the dangerous influenza strain was accidentally shipped from the CDC to another lab. A CDC internal report described how scientists failed to follow proper procedures to ensure samples were inactivated before they left the lab, and also found multiple other problems with operating procedures in the anthrax lab. A few weeks later, the Food and Drug Administration officials ran across 16 forgotten vials of smallpox that were in storage. Meanwhile, the largest, most severe, and most complex Ebola outbreak in history was raging across West Africa, and the first patient to be diagnosed in the United States had just been announced. That was the environment that we were working in. So it was within that context that the scientists and the biosecurity experts found themselves embroiled in a debate about this gain-of-function research. Was it really worth it? Well, as such, in October 2014, because of Public health concerns, the U.S. government banned all federal funding on efforts to weaponize three viruses, influenza, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, and the Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS. So we banned all that in 2014. Now just keep that in mind and set that aside, how dangerous it was, how many problems with security and safety and the potential of a pandemic if something leaked out of one of these labs that were supposed to be secure, but were not. Let's go on to a second way that scientists were working with these viruses, because it's called passaging. Again, a term as a layman I didn't know until I started to do some research on this. What is passaging? Passaging. Well, passaging is the placing of a live virus into an animal or cell culture to which it is not adapted, and then, before the virus dies out, transferring it to another animal or cell of the same type. Passaging is often done iteratively. In other words, it's done one after another, after another, after another. In theory, the theory is that the virus will rapidly evolve as viruses have high mutation rates. 
It changes all the time. But if they change and they become adapted to the new animal or the cell type, passaging a virus by allowing it to become adapted to its new situation creates a new pathogen. The most famous experiment on passaging was conducted in a lab of a Dutch researcher. This Dutch researcher took an avian influenza flu called H5N1 that did not infect of all animals they were using ferrets and serially passaged them to other ferrets. The intention of the experiment was to specifically to evolve what they call potential pandemic pathogens. But what happened was after 10 passages, the researchers found that the virus had indeed evolved to not only infect ferrets, but to transmit to others in neighboring cages. They had created an airborne ferret virus, a potential pandemic pathogen, and a storm in the international scientific community evolved. So think about this now. We have the gain of function that could make things more dangerous, more infectious. Now we have passaging that takes something that is not dangerous to humans, not dangerous to other animals, and passing it through this process and evolving it so that it is dangerous to others. So since these two previous coronavirus near pandemic, SARS in the 2003 and the MERS in 2012, probably both came from bats and are both thought but not proven to have transitioned to humans via intermediate animals, in particular what they call civets and dromedaries. Well, dromedaries are the um, camels. And the civet is a small, lean, mostly nocturnal mammal relative to tropical Asia and Africa. It's typically found in uh, tropical uh, forests. And this, the term civic applies to over a dozen different mammal species. Most of the species um, are found in Southeast Asia because there's a lot of experimentation going on over there in China. So this virus then evolved briefly in this animal species, but not enough to cause a civic pan pandemic. And then it was picked up by a human before it died out in the civics. In this first human so the patient zero, the virus survived, perhaps only barely, but was passed on, making the first case of human-to-human -human transmission. As it was successfully passed on in its first human host, the virus rapidly evolved, adapting to better infect its new host, and after such tentative transmission, the pandemic properly began. That's how pandemics occur. Scientists are manipulating viruses, creating them more serious nature of them to, in theory, prevent pandemics, but instead they're causing pandemics. So how safe is this manipulation research? Well, an accidental lab release not merely, is not merely a theoretical possibility, because in 1977, a laboratory in Russia and maybe even China was most likely um, uh, releases that while they were developing a flu vaccine accidentally released the extent H1N1 influenza virus and the H1N1 then went on to become a global pandemic virus a large portion of the global population became infected 
In this case, the deaths were few because the population was over age 20, had historic immunity to the virus. But many of you may remember the term H1N1. In 1977, it got out and created this worldwide pandemic in the sense that so many people got infected, we just didn't have as many deaths because we got lucky. This episode is not widely known because only recently has this conclusion been formally acknowledged in the scientific literature and in the virology community that has been reluctant to discuss discuss such incidents and accidents. They kind of hide things up because they don't want to lose their funding. Still, laboratories, these viruses escape, leading to human and animal deaths. Smallpox in Britain, equine encephalitis in South America are common enough that they ought to be much better known that these things have happened. Only rarely have these broken out into actual pandemics on the scale of the H1N1 and incidentally broke out again in 2009-2010 as a swine flu, many of you remember that, causing deaths estimated between 3,000 and 200,000 deaths worldwide. Many scientists have warned that experiments with these potential pandemic pathogens like smallpox and Ebola and influenza viruses are inherently dangerous and should not be subject and should be subject to strict limits and oversight. They should not be hidden. They should not be in labs that aren't 100% secure. So even in the limited case of the SARS-like coronaviruses, since the quelling of the original SARS outbreak in 2003, there have been at least six documented SARS disease outbreaks originating from research labs, including four in China. These outbreaks caused 13 individual infections and one death. Now, that doesn't sound like much in today's world, but we were just lucky that it didn't go further. But clearly, labs are not as secure as they should be. Well, the story develops. And we're going to continue the story about the current day coronavirus and the outbreak and the problems that it's caused right after this commercial. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded show on America's Web Radio. Join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics. Morning. Uh, this is David Moxley in the Classic Car Show, and uh, we've got... <sighs> A great job to do right now, and that's welcome a new advertiser to the Classic Car Show. And many of you have seen their trucks on the road as well as know and have used them over the in the past. And it's um, we've got uh, Steve Capra on the line with us, and he's with McAllister's Transportation Group. And um, Steve, how are you doing today? Morning, David. I'm fine. How about yourself? Just fine. And tell us something about... Uh, what you do, as well as uh, what makes you all stand out from everybody else. Sure. Uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank you for, uh, for the time and the opportunity to sponsor and partner with such a, a great group. You guys, for what you stand for, uh, is right in line with uh, the mottos and uh, the mantra of our company as well. Uh, I, my title is Vice President of Sales and Business Development. I'm responsible for all sales throughout the United States, uh, myself and my team. Uh, and what we do as a company is we provide enclosed transportation to the automobile industry. Uh, and that's 
straight down from the OEMs through snowbirds and personal moves. And our favorite stuff to do of, of all of that is uh, the collector car market. Uh, we're fully involved with the Amelia Islands, uh, Pebble Beaches, and all of the major shows throughout the United States. You know, and I have heard nothing but th- good things about you all, and we certainly do appreciate it. How do people get a hold of you? And um, we'll go from there. Sure. You can uh, reach us a couple different ways. The easiest way is if you're uh, web savvy, you can go to McAllister's, and that's M double C O double L. I-S-T-E-R-S dot com and you can see a whole layout on, on what we do as an organization and there's a web form there that you can send in and request a quote for a transport move or you can call our 800 number and that's 800-748-3160 and David, I don't give this number out to many people but I'm going to give it out to you and to your viewers uh, they can call my direct cell line as well and that's 609 609- Nine six zero sixty three ninety seven, and uh, just give us a call. We're here to serve you, uh, and here to uh, to make everything happen for you, folks. Steve, thank you, and we look forward to a long partnership and friendship with you all, with you and McAllister. So, we uh, thanks for being a part of America's Web Radio. Now you're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. We are talking about the origin, the definitions, the explanations of uh, uh, COVID-19. We've uh, defined some of the terms so we have a better understanding, and we're now understanding the process of the science in researching SARS or uh, COVID-type viruses. We've learned that there is something called gain of function where we take a virus from nature and we try to change it so that it is more deadly and more infectious. And now we've also found out that scientists use a process called passing or passaging, they use both terms, uh, to create a virus that would go from animals to humans uh, by having a series of mutations. So now we want to talk about how all this kind of fits together with current day. You know, as we talk about those processes that are going on in the scientific community, the, it's awfully dangerous, it sounds like, to a uh, layman like myself. Uh, but I understand in talking to scientists that it is the way, it is a normal way to take and develop research to find changes uh, potentially in uh, uh, DNA splicing to look for cures for things like cancers or Alzheimer's. In this case, we're using the processes uh, around viruses, which makes it very dangerous. But the purpose is to find cures for viruses before they occur naturally uh, in um, the wild and become pandemics that we know nothing about. So, um, for these reasons, and also to ensure the effectiveness of future pandemic preparedness efforts, it's a matter of vital international importance to establish whether a laboratory escape hypothesis on the COVID-19 from China uh, has credible evidence to support it. Um, This must be done regardless of the problem in the U.S. of the sort of toxic partisan politics that's going on right now. Um, We need to find out whether or not this 
virus escaped voluntarily or whether it was a mutation that occurred in nature. Um, so we know how best to do future researches. So putting all this together, what's the connection to the Wuhan labs and what's been going on over there? Well, in the face of the 2014 moratorium in the United States, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and currently the leading doctor in the U.S. on uh, coronavirus and on that task force that was set up uh, under the um, uh, auspices of uh, Vice President Pence. Well, when they couldn't get the funding in the United States, when that moratorium was put on in 2014, uh, Dr. Fauci in running all of this work on the coronavirus, he outsourced in 2015 the gain-of-function research to China's Wuhan lab and licensed that lab to continue receiving U.S. government funding. So we funded, as a country, the Wuhan lab. Dr. Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases actually funded a study on bad coronaviruses, which was a project that included scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, or WIV, we're going to talk about WIV. Um, it's a Chinese lab. At the center of all this controversy is the one we think about when they talk about Chinese labs. But it's at the center of the controversy over this bad research. Uh, that study confirmed in 2018 that humans had died from the coronavirus. Now, one might ask, in a very serious way, if the government, the U.S. government, banned this research in 2014 on federal funds being used for this gain-of-function research, what are, are the federal compliance and ethical issues surrounding the fact that the National Institute of Health still gave fund, federal funding instead of private funding to the Wuhan lab to continue the experiments. Now, as we continue to fund work in a lab that looks like the problem started, and we'll talk about whether it was accidental or maybe a, some other cause. So how did the virus escape from Wuhan if that's the case? Or is it the case? Well, in essence, the lab escape theory is what Wuhan is that Wuhan is the site of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the WIV. It's China's first and only biosafety level four. That's the highest level uh, supposed of safety and security. It's the only one in China. And so it's the highest security level of any research that can be done. But it was just added, really, while the, the laboratory existed for several years, the Level 4 security was only added in 2018. But they had been collecting large numbers of coronaviruses from bat samples ever since the original SARS outbreak in 2002 and 2003, including collecting more in 2018. So this research was led by a uh, Professor Xi at the WIV the scientists also published experiments in which bat coronaviruses were included into human cells. 
Moreover, according to an April 14th article in the Washington Post, the U.S. Embassy staff visited the Wuhan lab in 2018 and had grave concerns about biosecurity there. In 2018, the U.S. Embassy in Beijing took the unusual step of repeatedly sending U.S. science diplomats to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, this WIV, which had in 2015 become the first laboratory to achieve that higher level of security. What the U.S. officials learned during their visits concerned them so much that they dispatched two diplomatic cables characterized as sensitive but unclassified back to Washington. The cables warned about safety and management weaknesses at the lab and proposed more attention and help. The first cable warns that the lab work on the bat coronaviruses and their potential human transmission represented a risk of a new SARS-like pandemic. That's exactly what happened. At that lab, it's just eight miles from the Hunan, Hunan live animal market that was initially thought to be the site of origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. That has pretty much been dismissed. Some people might hold on to that, but this does not look like it necessarily just occurred naturally in a wet market, as they called it. The Wuhan lab is also home to a lab, or Wuhan City is also home to a lab called the Wuhan Center for Disease Prevention and Control, sort of their Chinese CDC, if you will. Now, it's only a level two security lab, and it's just a short distance away from the Hunan market. Bat coronaviruses in the past have been kept at that Wuhan CDC lab. Thus, the lab escape theory is that researchers from one or both of these labs may have picked up this SARS COVID-19 like bat coronas on one of their many collecting trips or alternatively, a virus they were studying, passaging, engineering, and otherwise manipulating escaped. Quite honestly, we don't know. I'm not trying to present some conspiracy theory. We really don't know if it was something that they picked up in nature or it happened in the lab. We know that they were doing gain of function, and we knew that they were doing passaging, and we knew that the lab was not very secure. So you can figure out what's going on here because... There is no evidence that they've been able to find. There is no other bats that in nature that seem to have this same COVID-19 uh, type of virus. So some professors in virology at the University of Australia, since they're over there as well and have been involved with this process, they first addressed that question of whether there was a natural pathway, whether that was viable. And what they determined was that there is no natural virus matching that COVID-19 that's been found in nature, despite an extensive, intensive search to find its origins. That is to say, the idea of an animal intermediate that was working to develop this is just pure speculation. Indeed, there's no credible viral or animal host intermediaries, either in the form of a confirmed animal host or a plausible virus intermediate that has to date emerged to explain any natural transfer of the SARS to humans. In addition, 
there are two further difficulties with the natural transfer thesis. Apart from the weak epidemiological association between early cases and the Hunan wet market. First is that the researchers from the Wuhan lab traveled to caves in Yunnan about, oh, maybe a mile or so away, to find horseshoe bats containing the SARS-like virus. To date, the closest living relative to SARS-CoV-2 yet found comes from Yuan. Why would an outbreak of a bass bat virus occur in Wuhan when Yunnan is where the bats would have been? They would have affected the population there first, so there's no reason why, if it's actually in nature, that it would have occurred and started in Wuhan. And moreover, the Chinese population of 1.3 billion, if there's spillover from the wildlife trade, that was the explanation, then other things being equal, the probability of a pandemic starting in Wuhan is really less than 1% from the calculations that are made. So you can say take a bad virus that is not infectious to humans and force its selection by culturing it with cells that express what's called the human ACE2 receptor, in other words, the ability for humans to pick up this virus. The cells have been created many years ago to culture the, the SARS virus, and, um, and you can force this bad virus to adopt to infect human cells via mutations in its spike protein, which would have the effect of increasing the strength of its binding to humans and inevitably reducing the strength of its binding to bats. In other words, it gets transferred from bats to humans. That is the likely scenario of what's actually happened. So the viruses in prolonged culture will also develop a random mutation that does not affect its function. The result of these experiments is a virus that is highly virulent in humans, but is sufficiently different that it no longer resembles the original bat virus. Because the mutations are acquired randomly by selection, there is no signature of a human gene jockeying, but this is clearly a virus that could still be created by human intervention. So we've got to make a difference between a human intervention and process that says, well, there's no evidence of human intervention. It actually can be something that the end result shows no effect of humans, but it's because of the passaging that this has occurred. Well, let's take another final um, break, and we'll come back and wrap this all up with uh, where this is all going and what it might actually mean. So stay with us, and we'll be right back on Healthcare Insight. Want to give your family, our loved one, the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shower. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 
1500 hours America's Web Radio. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email maga45cag at gmail.com and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20 year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at maga45cag at gmail.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final session of Healthcare Insight. Now, what have we learned today about the virus? Well, what we've learned is that there's a difference between the disease and the virus. The disease is COVID-19, but the virus is actually SARS-CoV-2. We basically know it as the disease. The virus, the SARS virus, has been around for a long time, has been studied for a long time. So it's not anything terribly new. We also found out that scientists have been working on these viruses in rather strange ways that, as a layman, we wouldn't necessarily understand because it looks like they're making the virus, the SARS virus, worse, more profound in its impact, and also that it will transmit to a greater degree than it would have in nature. These two things, this gain of function and this passaging, are enormous insights as to what the scientific community has been doing to manipulate the virus to create a more virulent virus. And we can see that they haven't been very safe in these labs that are supposed to be safe. The things have gotten out. There have been misplacements of the viruses. There's been a forgetfulness about where the viruses were stored. There's a sloppiness to the um, scientist community working in these labs when it should be the actual opposite. So there's no doubt that at some point something was going to happen to create a pandemic, whether it was from China, whether it was from Russia, whether it was from the United States. We also found out that the United States was funding this whole operation in the United States until 2014, when it was then outlawed, basically, defunded. And what happened was that work got shifted over to the Wuhan lab, and the United States funds continued to flow where that research was over in Wuhan into a less safe, a less secure lab. So what was really going on over at Wuhan? Was Wuhan doing these experiments with the COVIDs and bats? Well, since 2004, shortly after the original SARS outbreak, remember that came from bats, researchers from the Wuhan lab have been collecting bat coronaviruses in an intensive search for a SARS-like pathogen. They wanted to continue with this process of these viruses that typically come out of bats. Since the original collecting trip, many more have been conducted. They were conducted in 2016, 17, and 18, or so it appears. So that group at the Wuhan lab has already been performed 
has already performed experiments using those collected viruses. In 2013, the lab reported isolating an infectious clone of a bat coronavirus, and they gave it a localized name, the WIV-1, which stands for the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And it was obtained by introducing a bat coronavirus into monkey cells, then passaging it. So we have proof that they were passaging things, these viruses from SARS. And they then tested its infectivity in human cells, engineered to express that human ACE2 receptor. There was a receptor in a human body that would accept this virus. So we know that they were working on gain of function. We know that they were working on passaging. And we know that they were working on the coronavirus. I don't know how much more circumstantial evidence and proof that we need to know that this was happening at the Wuhan lab in China. All the things that would create a potential pandemic if it was accidentally released or released on purpose, or more likely accidentally. Nobody's accusing them of having a bioterrorism act against the world. In 2014, just before the U.S. gain-of-function research ban went into effect, that Wuhan lab co-authored a paper with the lab from North Carolina that performed the original gain-of-function research on bat coronaviruses at the Department of Epidemiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In this particular set of experiments, the researchers combined the spike of the bat coronavirus. We all know the picture now from TV, the spikes. And they did it in a mouse-adapted SARS, what they call backbone. And they engineered it into a single live virus. And that spike was provided by that lab in China. They put this bad human mouse virus into a cultured human airway cells and also into live mice. The researchers observed notable pathogenesis in the infected mice. The mice adapted part of this virus comes from a 2007 experiment in which that lab in North Carolina created the virus through passaging. So all these scientists were working on the same things that create a much stronger, more potent virus, and then how to make it such that it would become connected to humans through this passaging. Well, we don't know exactly what ultimately happened. And the only way to ultimately know is that in these labs, they keep very detailed records. Because as they're doing all this research, they can develop concepts of intellectual property rights, of patents. And so these labs have to keep very detailed records. So if the virus was being studied, if gain of function was being performed, if passaging was being done, there would be notes in that Wuhan lab of exactly what happened and when and how they were studying it. That would give us great insight as to the source and the cause of the coronaviruses that the world is experiencing. But guess what? The Chinese government won't release those notes. 
and a lot of people question whether or not they still exist. They could have been burned and deleted because some of the lab researchers seem to be missing at this point who might be able to tell us. So there's a lot of shenanigans going on in these labs. So, so now what? Well, in 2019, the National Institute of Health lifted a three-year moratorium on the funding the gain-of-function research on the potential pandemic viruses such as the avian flu, SARS, and MERS, opening the door for certain types of research to resume. In a statement, the NIH director, Francis Collins, said, we have a responsibility to ensure the research and infectious agents is conducted responsibly and that we consider the potential biosafety and biosecurity risks associated with such research. He added that he is confident that the, re- that the new review process spelled out in the new framework will help to facilitate the safe, secure, and responsible conduct of this type of research in a manner that maximizes the benefits to the public health. Now, what happened really is that in 2014, the Obama administration put a halt on this gain-of-function research, realizing the dangers of it and the fact that there had been a lot of accidental releases, poor security, poor safety in the labs that were supposed to be secure. They set up then a commission to develop a new set of guidelines, and it took several years for them to agree to these guidelines. And so when the Trump administration said we're going to start to fund the gain-of-function activities again, it was only after new procedures were put into place. So it wasn't like they said, well, let's go back and fund what was a problem before. We're just going to start sending dollars that way. That's not what happened. So they have a whole new panel called the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity. And they spent months hammering out this new process. But can we trust it? This is very dangerous stuff. And so I think that we have to continue to be on guard. We have to have somebody that we can really trust in that scientific community. But it seems like it's going to continue to go forward. So what happens to all this research on the project that we were doing because now we're trying to find the cure of vaccine and some of the work we did may actually lead us in that direction. So the Chinese Bat Research Project that was funded entirely uh, through the NIH grant, that field work is not going to carry on in China because there's no funds for it. And that may be a good thing because if we bring it home under more strict guidance, then maybe we can control these things that are supposed to be helping us instead of turning around and biting us us on the backside because we don't do it right. Well, what's the real source? We wrap all this up. What do we say about the real source of the coronavirus? It still remains a question. Did it come from the wet market, as we heard in the media so often, to sort of dismiss the idea of inept Chinese research and poor security labs? Well, that doesn't seem to really fly very well when you look at all the data and what was going on. It doesn't look like this was created in nature. Did it come from the Wuhan labs? There's two labs and people were going back and forth. The more likely answer is that it came from the Wuhan labs and was accidentally released. Did it just come from nature? Doesn't look like it. Just like it didn't really come from the wet market and whatever might have happened at the wet market. It didn't come from nature. 
but we can't prove it one way or the other because the passaging hides the fact that it might have been developed and promoted in the lab. So what was the reason? Why, why would anybody do this? Well, if it happened in nature, it just happens in nature. Was it an accidental release? That looks to be a more logical answer, that nobody would want to release something into the world. Was it a biological warfare? Unlikely. The real problem is what happened after the accidental release, if that's what happened. And that is that the Chinese government refused to let people understand and know early on what some of the impacts were in far as transmission from human to human. And the fact that the Chinese government went out and tried to get the protective equipment uh, worldwide, um, uh, get a monopoly on all that, and keep other people from getting it. They were not very open, as you would expect. They don't release the papers about what was actually happening in the Wuhan lab. So it looks like a massive cover-up by the Chinese government on an accidental release. That would be the best story It's hard to believe that anybody, even the communist Chinese government that you can't trust and has been so belligerent with its own people, let alone others outside, that would release this as a biological warfare. So that's where we wind up. I hope you learned a few things today, got a few new insights. None of it is trying to create a conspiracy theory. It's just trying to get the facts that have come from various academic papers uh, biology um, research uh, papers. I tried to look back at real details and facts and not try to drive a, uh, a conclusion at the end that it was somebody's fault. We still don't know the answer to that, but the insights as to what was going on in that medical community, I think, is pretty fascinating and hope we don't see any kind of accidental releases from this dangerous, dangerous work that's going on. Well, join us again next week, and we'll find another topic to talk about on Healthcare Insight. You've been listening to America's Web Radio. I'm Ron Bachman. Until next week, we'll see you then. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.